Hello, you're listening to the Statelessness and Exclusion Dialogues podcast, brought to you by the Institute on Statelessness and Inclusion. I'm your host, Andy Clark. In this podcast series, we're trying to better understand the link between structural discrimination and statelessness in the world today. We're looking at different themes, including the history of colonialism, patriarchy, state formation, xenophobia and racism, and digital ID and documentation. In the series, we speak to a diverse range of experts from around the world. In this episode, we look at the introduction of digital ID and its impact on statelessness. The digital identity system can uh, add another layer of disenfranchisement to a community that is already disenfranchised. My name is Mustafa Mahmoud. I'm the uh, co-director of the citizenship program at Namati. I've been working on issues of nationality for the past nine years. And I also come from a community that um, are subjected to discriminatory practices that put them at risk of statelessness. Digital ID systems haven't been around for that long. Right now, there's a, there's a lot of kind of theoretical ideas about what they'll do, how they'll transform societies. You know, they, they serve so many different potential purposes. But um, in a lot of contexts, in Kenya, for example, you know, the system hasn't really even come online but it has made the struggles of um, people who are already denied nationality that much harder. My name's Laura Bingham, and I'm the the current executive director of an institute called um, the Institute for Law, Innovation, and Technology, which is based at Temple University uh, in the United States. Uh, I am an international human rights lawyer, And I worked for many years at an organization called the Open Society Justice Initiative. And I ran a program there on citizenship and statelessness and access to national identity documents. Uh, I've engaged with the transition to digital identity systems, digital identity platforms, um, especially the ones that are emerging in uh, lower and middle income countries across the global south. Laura and Mustafa join us then for this episode and a deep dive into the impact of digitalization on statelessness. To start the discussion, I turned to Mustafa and asked him for an example which encapsulates the issues being thrown up by the move to the digitalization of ID documents. I come from the Nubian community and our community, the Nubian community, is one of the minority communities in the country. We've been marginalized for, for centuries based uh, on the fact that of our religion and ethnicity. So based on the fact that you come from the community, you are subjected to differential treatment that basically requires you submit additional document to go through extra scrutiny. And then also, the, or to make it worse, you are subjected to inordinate delays and sometimes denials uh, without justifications as to why you're denied and you not know even um, if you're denied or not. These inordinate delays can range from uh, one to 10 years and even more than 10 years. So. Uh, when the digital ID in Kenya um, was being rolled out, the NIMS, which is the National Integrated Identity Management System, uh, our community went to court because uh, we already have a challenge of enrolling in the current identity regime. And for you to enroll in the Huduma number or the NIMS uh, system, you needed the current identity to enroll. So the fact that you do not have the prerequisite de- 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 document, this document becomes another layer of discrimination and further marginalizes the community. because. 
as it's called huduma number in Kiswahili huduma means service so it becomes a service number and without that number you'll not access any basic service and even any, any basic human right like uh, uh, basic rights to health basic health rights to education and even freedom of movement so it, uh, the digital identity system can uh, add another layer of disenfranchisement to a community that's already disenfranchised that's that's a really clear example of how digital id is is getting into that and we'll we'll unpack that later further up in the podcast but i'd like to bring in laura and laura can you just give us a quick snapshot of an example which encapsulates this idea for us so the story that i thought about telling here actually happened in the dominican republic um where uh, racial discrimination over decades and decades and decades has really kind of crystallized around access to identity documentation access to nationality and it's left hundreds of thousands of people without a nationality um primarily of Haitian descent uh and when i was working with an organization the open society justice initiative a number of years ago before digital identity became a thing in statelessness um and migration and nationality practices uh we we were trying to document these denials uh where there wasn't a reason given when people went to the civil registry offices to get a birth certificate for example and um what organizers ended up doing on the ground was accompanying dominicans of haitian descent when they were going to these offices and uh with a notary public which in that in the country in that context is someone who can swear an affidavit about what they've witnessed um and so they would go along with someone to the office to try and, and access a document try and get a uh, uh, the a birth of their child registered and then witness what happened witness the denial witness what was said um about someone's last name or the way that they looked being the actual reason why they were being denied and then we could use the uh written witness statement basically in uh, a court proceeding to challenge that or as evidence um later on down the line and these these kinds of um evidence gathering approaches are not captured there's no way to capture that in the process of translating all of this into a digital system okay um without work like Mustafa does with, with the community and and others are doing all over the world. We'll get into that in a minute and great to set things up uh, at the top of the podcast here. Um just a kind of a quick fire question and it might be difficult to answer this but just try your best to kind of give a brief answer on this and then we'll talk more about those examples. Can we quantify how big an impact the introduction of digital ID has on statelessness? One um difficulty with that is that digital ID systems haven't been around for that long right now there's a, there's a lot of kind of theoretical ideas about what they'll do how they'll transform societies you know they they serve so many different potential purposes but um in a lot of contexts in Kenya for example and Mustafa can talk a lot more about this you know the system hasn't really even come online but it has made the struggles of um people who are already denied nationality that much harder because now you have to kind of contend with a system that's in a black box you don't really know how it's affecting um your 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 struggle your, the challenges that you and your community were already facing um so in that sense it is difficult to quantify because you just see it all sort of coming but it hasn't fully unraveled yet um in countries like India 
where you've had uh, you know, now 1.3 billion people enrolled in a digital ID system, but that system was citizenship blind, supposedly. So it doesn't actually serve to confirm or deny identity in theory. Um, but in uh, places like Assam, where nationality is contested, it also it doesn't serve as a lever of access to nationality or national identity. The coverage is actually very thin. And so then the surveillance and exclusion properties that are built into these technologies are really come into the fore. Yeah. Um, and it's just another tool of exclusion. Another tool of exclusion, you say. It, it sounds like, you know, the introduction of digital ID, which is being rolled out, is, is making life a lot harder uh, for people who are stateless, struggling to get documentation. Uh, Mustafa, what's your take on that? You know, what's your view? Can you quantify that to the scale of it? Or how difficult is it making things in your experience? In our experience, it makes it far worse uh, because in Kenya, we have several stateless communities. And these stateless communities have been accessing the services, uh, like medical services, uh, basic education. But uh, when you're integrating it into service provision, it means you're going to leave out thousands of populations out because it's uh, becoming a requirement. For example, uh, around 2012, the government of Kenya introduced um, uh, a requirement for every child to sit an examination. They needed a birth certificate. So it meant that these children will have started from uh, class one up to class seven because you sit examination in class eight. When they reach class seven, they have to drop out because they cannot continue with education. So you'll see that their quality of life is affected. And um, these communities are well known. Uh, so you find the whole community being subjected to poverty because they cannot break out of that circle of poverty because they cannot access quality education. So um, it continues uh, to make it even worse. Uh, like, for example, in Kenya, we have a whole uh, region, the Northeastern Kenya region. You cannot get out of that region without an identity document. So if you have that uh, in a digital record that someone can access a file online at the same time, it means these communities will be completely locked. It becomes like you have a border within a country uh, to move internally. So I think in, in the larger sense, I'll say that these problems are not quantitative, but they are qualitative. Because until you hear the stories, you cannot people put it together and uh, unfortunately for years we've not never seen the number of stateless people like for example we used to say that there are 20,000 uh, stateless people in Kenya we've registered uh, 2,000 Macondes we've registered 1,000 Shonas but we are still see not seeing the numbers um, adding up that much so these are all estimates so I'll say that, um, if you want to quantify it you have to get more of the human stories and make it more like qualitative is issues yeah Okay, tell us tell us more about those human stories and from your own community. The example you mentioned briefly at the top of the podcast. You know, tell us more about how digital ID documentation and the implementation of that is really having an effect on on the community you mentioned, the Nubian community. So, to give you context, uh, the Nubian Rights Forum, the organisation that I used to work for before I joined Namati, uh, in partnership with the Open Society Justice Initiative. Uh, in 2012, designed co-designed uh, paralegal program uh, that was anchored with a regional decision from the African Committee of Experts on the Rights and Welfare of the Child that basically said that by the government subjecting the Nubian child to differential treatment, that is vetting and uh, inordinate delays and among others, they are putting the community at risk of statelessness. So for years, uh, we, uh, since 2013, when after the designing of the project, since 2013, the Nubian uh, community has had a paralegal program 
these paralegals uh, work with the community in terms of empowering them about the law and then throughout the application process monitoring it. In 2019, when the government was rolling out uh, the National Integrated uh, Identity Management System, or we call it Huduma uh, Number, uh, we populated the, the data from the paralegal program that showed discrimination. Th that formed the biggest uh, part of our evidence that we were trying to use to anchor our litigation. And one of the witnesses, um, he's, we famously call him Gulux, he's a 50-year-old. He had served as a policeman and lost his first generation ID. After the first generation, there was a second generation ID. He, his house was burnt, uh, got burnt, and he lost his uh, service documents. He lost his national ID, which was a first generation. And for the past 30 years, he has been trying to apply for an identity card. So when uh, we went to court, we asked the court, how can this person be able to enroll into the new identity regime when he does not only already have this other document that you require? And for the past 50 years of his life, he has not been productive. Uh, th that was a heavy evidence that it could not be disputed to the extent that the government called him and, uh, and asked him to come and get his identity document after going to court. But there are several cases. There's another ca case of a woman we call Mimi. She has three kids and one of them was already 19. Unfortunately, in 2021, the only person who had an, an identity card uh, was stabbed, the husband. So the wife did not have the identity called, uh, card, the, uh, the lady called Mimi. And the child needed to go to apply for an ID card. So the only person who could, because for this community, the, either of the parents with an identity card has to come present to the registrar and endorse a fingerprint to prove that they are the biological parent of this, which is not anchored in any law. So when the husband died, this woman could not even support the child's application process. So you see how, because a mother not getting an identity card, the child can completely not get nationality. And at the end of it all, that person can become stateless. Uh, and this litigation helped us because we tried to lead, uh, to push for her case also. And after um, uh, she got her ID when she was 35 years old. And imagine, you're supposed to get an ID at the age of 18. If you, if you want to look at it critically, you'll say that 17 years of her productive life is gone. And she was the sole breadwinner. So all this legacy of, of people and discrimination and legacies of discrimination play into the, the new systems of, of trying to digitalize ID documents from, from what you're saying and, and making things more more difficult. Uh, Laura, was that the same situation in the example you mentioned about uh, people of Haitian descent in the Dominican Republic? Can you just tell us more about that? Yes. <laughs> um, I was actually going to stick with the Kenyan example. I think, you know, I, listen, I think it's this, it's going to be the same everywhere because, um, these are top down systems and, uh, the promotion happens outside of the national context, right? So the, the systems are designed to be scaled to interoperate with each other. You know, I know that's a technical term, but basically to share, to structure data in the same way so that it can flow and, and, and go across borders and, you know, be shared for a variety of different purposes, right? So the same phenomenon is going to happen everywhere uh, where there's discrimination in access to identity documentation, which is everywhere. Um, one thing I wanted to say, just picking up on Mustafa's example about that litigation in Kenya uh, because I was also involved in the litigation, assisting with uh, sort of the legal aspects of it. And one thing that the government ministries that were the named defendants in the case did uh, was to turn over some 
information, a little bit of information about how the system was designed and um, how people were, were enrolled in the system. Because every time, so whenever a new ID system is introduced, typically there will be a, a mass enrollment period there if the government doesn't have a lot of information, especially biometric information on the population. And during the mass enrollment, what, what we got was a training manual for the, the officers who would be out in the field working with, with uh, members of the public to take their biometrics and, and um, some biographical information from them. And on in the training manual, it was telling those officers how to fill out the form. And when it got to the box on um, national ID number and birth registration number, there was an instruction that said, if the person doesn't have these documents, just mark an XX, a double X on their form. Yeah, yeah. And submit it. And there was no further information in the training manual or that came out anywhere in that litigation about what that meant for the people whose who the rest of their information would feed into this system. Would they have a nationality? Did they, you know, were they were they registered as foreign nationals? Were they, re- you know, so they could be easily tracked and traced through the system with that marker. And we still don't know today. So I, that's I, just to try and explain, at, you know, from the technical side, how those legacies of discrimination, as you put it, then get translated into a classification in a system like this. So that double X, you don't really know what the impact of that is on an individual level, just that it causes endless problems. That's right. What's your take on that, Mustafa? This system was supposed to compare the data against existing data. So if you're already an X, it means you're missing from the records. Does it mean that the moment you enter a record, that missing record will be used against you? Those are the questions that we were trying to ask the government. What is the fate of these people that you collected information about? And if you're going to issue uh, documents, uh, this Huduma card or Huduma number, what status are you going to issue them? Because once you've enrolled someone, you're supposed to give them the card. So what status is going to be on record? Because one of the concerns that we had is that um, in the late 90s, the northeastern region had the worst drought ever. And some population went to the refugee camp and they wanted food. They didn't know that they will be registered as refugees. Years down the line, they, they, when they reached the age of 18, their children reached the age of 18, they realized that they were reg- registered as refugees. So is this the same situation where someone would be double registered in a record as an unknown person and when they reach the age of 18, they'll be told, well, according to our record, you don't exist as a Kenyan and you don't exist as a refugee. So who are you? You know, like right now we are battling with the issue of these communities having, having to prove their nationality and their Kenyanism. You see, so when you're in a record as an unknown person, it becomes another layer that becomes harder because there is a document that proves that we don't know you. So show us who you are and how do you show who you are? Uh, what about the role of colonialism in all of this? I mean, colonial powers introduced uh, the idea of documentation to determine often who belongs and who doesn't in in a particular state. And uh, can we trace a line from discrimination through ID in colonial times to discrimination through digital ID today? I'd say in, in our country it's very easy because we are victims of colonialism in our country. These ter- ter- territories were not drafted by us. They were demarcated on us. And then secondly, uh, if you see the history of uh, discrimination in Kenya, is that during the colonial times, uh, the aspect of uh, divide and rule, the country, the country was divided into 43 ethnic districts. 
So each ethnic community was assigned a district. And for example, for us, the Nubian community, we didn't have an ethnic district. In Kenya, every time you are, you're asked, where are you from? It means which ethnic district you come from. So whenever Kenyans talk about 42 tribes, we are talking about the, those demarcated ethnic districts because Nairobi was not counted as a district, as an ethnic district. It was a cosmopolitan area. So us as a Nubian, we are a good example of uh, colonialism affecting nationality because we cannot trace uh, of the 42 ethnic districts where we belong. So when you say that maybe one of them is Nyanza, they'll tell you that is for Luos. When you say that you are from Western, they'll tell you, you are, those are for lawyers. So us, when you talk about Kibira, which is in Nairobi, they tell us everybody in Kibira came from somewhere. Where did you come from? So yeah, we, I, I can say I personally, as a Nubian, I am a classical example of uh, the fails of colonialism. And is there a, can we draw a line to sort of digital IDs then today, Laura? Um, well, one line I would draw is um, you know back to that point I was making about where the ideas come from about what kind of solution this is uh, you know these the, a digital ID system is what's it going to solve and that comes out of you know big global transnational industry so I think it's you can't separate digital ID as an idea from bi the biometrics industry from you know um, inter international security debates and these are driven by a world that is still colonialist you know so i think um the idea that the systems would look the same everywhere essentially maybe have some kind of modular differences but but really they they look a lot of alike that's a colonial idea that's a, that's a, that's a colonial practice you know and then for the makers involved, the people who, they're the companies who design systems and components of the systems, you know, those, those are largely in the West, uh, in the North America and Europe. And the data, there's also a digital colonialism aspect to this, um, because the, the information that's being gathered um, from individuals, largely across the global South, where there's this, you know, so-called identity gap, which I don't dispute that there is, you know, um, but it's looked at more from a colonial lens. It's looked at more as, you know, a, a lucrative asset, all this missing data, right? And that's a colonialist attitude. Um, and I th think mo to a large extent, there's a recognition of that in the countries where the systems are being uh, built, designed, considered, debated today. Is there any awareness or enough awareness amongst the you know companies designing this technology and introducing this technology of the kind of legacies and the people who are missing from the data you know that we've talked about a little bit already who are facing who were already facing you know huge problems because of the lack of documentation but now facing new and varied problems because of the move to digital id so is there a kind of an awareness in the companies about these uh, these challenges uh, well, uh, the, the irony is that me and Laura have worked on this uh, Kenya issue for long. And um, Laura was behind the case that uh, took, I think it's Idemia, uh, to France, um, the, the, the court in France. So basically because their system that they are helping the government in Kenya, the, uh, the digital system that is anchoring the digital ID in Kenya is uh, uh, owned by them. 
So by the fact that they are, they are bind, bounded by the European Data Protection uh, uh, Regulation, uh, we saw it, saw it fit to take them to their own country and ask them uh, their accountability. You are not supposed to roll out a system that discriminated, uh, discriminates against a society. So why are you supporting a government, even though it's not in France, why are you for, uh, supporting a foreign government to discriminate against its own people? So um, we are trying to also hold them accountable. And for the past five, uh, several years, we've been also trying to do awareness uh, through the ID for Africa um, initiative that uh, I think it was formed at uh, the ID for D conversion in, the, in New York. So um, every year, and in fact, this year uh, in uh, April is being hosted in Kenya. And all the, the service providers, government stakeholders are coming. And Laura, Laura has played a big role in terms of even working with the World Bank, and she can speak about it. And even last uh, ID for, uh, for, for Africa Convention, I was uh, put in the, uh, in, the, in the panel with the World Bank trying to talk about discrimination in identity systems. So if the World Bank themselves are accepting that there is a possibility of discrimination, I think we are trying to do awareness to them, but Laura can speak to it more. Well, what's, what's really relevant is to whom are companies like Edemia uh, or uh, others, Talis, you know, sort of the, the, the big company, NEC, companies that are designing the, the technology, the algorithms that separate, you know, that can deduplicate, that can match and, and unmatch fingerprints, you know, these component parts of a digital ID system. Who are they accountable to? You know, um, and they work with governments. The governments are their clients. Um, and as Mustafa said, you know, the World Bank um, and other big international finance institutions and, and states are um, funding the systems. So, you know, a community like the Nubian community, NGOs that are kind of at the front lines um, working on discriminatory practices, discriminatory institutions, you know, sort of the systemic issues that we opened up the podcast with, they don't really have access. So it's hard to know to, it's really hard to know to what extent any company understands, but we can see from their actions that they don't want the discriminatory effects of their products to be their responsibility, right? They don't want that to be a part of the accountability framework around companies that they have some voluntary commitments and there are some laws like the law in France um, in the case that Mustafa was mentioning um, that do require some kind of reporting and what's called due diligence for companies, right? To kind of look at their practices and see if there are human rights violations associated with them. But it's very clear in the digital ID space that the companies that are involved don't want anyone looking at the impact that their products have out there in the world as a part of that responsibility. But are they open to tailoring those products, though, to take these kind of negative impacts on board? And, and if so, does that is the responsibility then with, uh, with national governments who are hiring these people in to roll out the systems? The responsibility, I think, right right now is falling in a gray area where the government is um, saying that they're, they're not responsible and um, that they're doing something positive and that they're implementing, you know, a development program and look at all of this promotional material. You know, the World Bank is supporting it. Everyone's saying it's going to uh, achieve sustainable development goals, et cetera, et cetera, right? And if 
some people are left out or if the system doesn't work perfectly well that's part that's part of progress so we should just accept that and go with the flow and you know tweak the system but the system itself is good that's the, that's sort of the government's argument the companies are saying well it can't be our responsibility to um police how our products are used by governments so it's falling in a gap and it's falling on the backs of the people who are the most marginalized what can be done to make this more equitable i mean we've talked a little bit about some of the big challenges so what what do you think can be done to make this uh, to mitigate this to to make sure the people you know are included who are, are now being excluded or risk of being excluded what can be done on that side mustafa I think uh, governments should learn and uh, corporates who are providing these systems should learn from existing systems. Like, how did people feel about the existing system? For example, the existing identity regime. Uh, why were they being left out? How can we include them more? Like, for example, there's uh, the problem of access to registration center, the connectivity uh, to those areas. There's still issues of electricity penetration to those areas. So how do we solve the existing system before we roll into a, a new system that will um, have a bigger burden? So I, I think the biggest uh, solution that we can give to uh, service providers and government is learn from the existing systems. And unfortunately for, uh, for them, they don't learn. They put the burden on the, the citizens. For example, when they were putting the bill for the, this uh, Huduma bill uh, or NIMS bill, they were saying that if you fail to register, you, are, you can be sentenced to a six months imprisonment or, uh, or $10,000 fine. Instead of telling us how you will be able to reach those people who are not reached and some, some of them did not apply because of geographical discrimination and the like, you are putting punitive measures instead of uh, affirmative action. So we need to have systems that have come with affirmative actions and they are learning from existing systems as to why they failed and not putting them as a prerequisite for every other thing so that it forces people to get a document that are not accessible. And that's not happening now? It's not yet happening. Laura, what do you think uh, can be done to sort of, you know, uh, try and try and address some of the, the many problems we've mentioned? Yeah, no, I, I agree with everything that Mustafa said. You know, I think um, that uh, we're in a moment now. I, well, I hope this is this is my hopeful perspective Go where governments, where, where you know, the powers that be, sort of the elite uh, that have conceived of identity and, and technology as a solution here, right? That they're recognizing that actually the foundation of all of that is trust and that they have not won anyone's trust. Um, and, and that just will fundamentally make these projects fail. And they're, they're actually very risky and expensive projects. So in the long run, I think those things, we, we, you know, there's a record in so many of these different national contexts of what really, what were the problems, what remain the structural problems that still need to be fixed. Lack of access to broadband, lack of access to electricity, discriminatory institutions of registration, you know, and we know why and we know against whom, like all that work, that's decades of work, you know, and it's so valuable. And I, I think, what I hope for is a turn back to that and, and sort of that the underwriters of digital ID systems will realize that it's not a magic bullet, you know, it never was, and it's not going to leapfrog, um, you know, so if we're looking at 2030 as the target for legal identity for all, right, and the sustainable development agenda, 
we put the cart before the horse in turning to technology to, to reach that goal. And we just need to go back and fix the structures that exist, create the laws that we need, you know, reform and the technology, and then the trust will come along with that, with that work. It seems an, an inevitable process, though, to continue with the digitalization of, of, of the documents, the ID documents. And Mustafa, is there a, a scenario where you see it can be a force for, for good? I, I think um, digitalization is a force that is coming. And uh, at the end of it all is uh, about what do we want to achieve from it? Like, for example, uh, when we're doing uh, the COVID vaccination, they were trying to run uh, identity numbers to check you if you're of edge. So um, if, you, if you're going to use it for service provision, equitable service provision, it can be good. But at the same time, uh, we should always uh, have the backup of the manual when the digital fails. Like, for example, all elections in Kenya, we usually say our elections are digital until the time of telling when it becomes manual. So I think we should always have both because... In case it's going to be used, for example, to help communities that have been left out. Like uh, a, there was a project that one of the organizations in Kenya was trying to roll out with the government uh, through the civil registry in terms of digital registration of birth at the time of occurrence, where you use the SSD platform instead of um, digital. If you don't have a smartphone, you do an SSD to register the birth. So those um, digital services that help to build on existing services could be good as long as they are bringing people on board and not leaving out people. So if they're centered in terms of inclusion, they'll be good. They will always make people feel welcome. But if they're going to be used to further marginalize people, then uh, there'll always be lack of trust between the people and the government. And what about where we are now with statelessness? I mean, that's what we're talking about in this podcast series. So what's the impact of digital ID now, you know, to summarize when it comes to, to statelessness in, in Kenya? So the impact is that uh, these stateless communities are further marginalized because remember, there are like three regimes that they've been left out. So they are coming to a fourth regime that they, uh, they can be uh, left out completely. And it means these communities are further becoming uh, invisible and visible completely. And even the little uh, services that were dropping in terms of uh, falling out through the cracks of discrimination, they will no longer be getting them because they'll be sealed. Uh, when you peg something to a document that is not accessible, especially to the, the stateless population, it means you don't, uh, you don't acknowledge that they exist. And the moment you don't acknowledge that they exist, you are now diminishing a population that is already struggling to exist. So yeah, I, I think it will further marginalize them. It will further lead to extinction of some communities if it is not well addressed in time. And that is the reason as why we, the civil society, are here. We try to be the voice of the voiceless. Laura, same question to you. I think we have to acknowledge it's a complex story, right? Uh, but I... You know, statelessness, working on statelessness and trying to resolve it is about relationships with people who hold the power to, to really make those solutions happen, right? And, and introducing a new, very costly system, a technology that very few people understand, um, disrupts that work. It, it, it can take, it can take relationships um, you know, away from civil society actors, from community actors, um, and divert attention, divert resources. That's, I think, 
at the kind of front lines of working on statelessness, that's happening. And sometimes uh, when a system like this, you know, comes into play, then there's power struggles and, and shuffling around in ministries, you know, who's, who's going to get the big um, responsibility of overseeing a project like that in the first place. Um, and that can push, as we've said, uh, other projects, other initiatives that are more likely to make a difference in resolving statelessness further down on the priority list. Um, and then what you get is an XX, you know, is a training manual sending people out into the field to put an XX in somebody's record. And so I think that's, that's kind of the negative story. But if, if statelessness is, a, and, and the risk of statelessness, you know, because I think we've been talking about broader issues that overlap with statelessness in civil registration systems where discrimination is really structural and prevalent. If that can be kept up at the foreground of the agenda in a digital ID system, then I do still like to hope um, that that means actually that the resolution of those structural issues is, is higher on the agenda. And I think that's what a lot of civil society groups, even working together across national boundaries today, are trying to push for is, you know, this actually has to come first. Don't put the cart before the horse. Fix the structural problems. And that's, um, you know, that, that's not everything that we need to solve statelessness. But that's where I see digital identity overlapping with efforts to um, address and resolve statelessness. Thank you both very much for taking part in the podcast. And thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a great it's great to catch up with you, Mustafa. You've been listening to the Statelessness and Exclusion Dialogues podcast, brought to you by the Institute on Statelessness and Inclusion. The series examines different themes impacting statelessness, including the history of colonialism, patriarchy, state formation, xenophobia and racism, and digital ID and documentation. Today we were talking about digitalization and its impact, and our thanks go to our guests Laura Bingham and Mustafa Mahmoud. If you'd like to know more about the work of the Institute on Statelessness and Inclusion, then visit the website institutesi.org. I'm Andy Clark. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>